All right, open your Bibles. Isaiah, go to the middle, turn to the right. Turn on your electronic devices. I can't help you there. Uh, Challenger Deep, anybody know what Challenger Deep is? It's in the Mariana Trench, Western Pacific Ocean, 200 miles from Guam. It's the deepest, darkest place on the planet. It lies 6.83 miles below sea level. That's 35,800 feet, give or take a little. It's Mount Everest is the highest point on the planet, and it's 29,029 feet. So this is Mount Everest in reverse plus 6,000 feet. Challenger Deep is the least known, least explored place on the planet. We know more about Mars than we do Challenger Deep. One thing we do know, though, at the bottom, at the very, very bottom, there is absolutely, positively, total, complete darkness. No sunlight. The ancient world of the Hebrew Scriptures would say, It's the great, chaotic, deep. Before creation was made, we're told in Genesis that it was a great, chaotic, deep. The Hebrew world tells us that when the great flood came and started decreating creation, it was the great, chaotic, deep. And then that whole world started looking at the seas that cover all of creation, and they had the tales of the Leviathan and the McCracken or the Kraken. The great, chaotic, deep. British scientists recently performed one of the most extreme and controversial experiments ever done on the human mind. What happens when you put a human being in absolute darkness? What happens when that human being cannot even see the hand in front of their face and they cannot hear anything? Have you ever heard your heartbeat? Anything but your heartbeat. What happens in total sensory deprivation? So what they did, they put six volunteers. I'd like to give a psych eval just on those six volunteers, wouldn't you? Six volunteers were put into a total isolation chamber for 48 hours to monitor the effects of the loss of light on their mental health. (laughs) Gosh. The leading the experiment was a professor named Stephen Robbins. He's Britain's leading expert in the field of psychological warfare. Experiments like this were done in the 1950s, but they were abandoned because nobody could complete the 48 hours. This time around, some made it. So what were the results? The first, number one, creepy mental emotion was anxiety. Now, this happened because usually when, a, when a, someone went into this room, they would start singing loudly because at the beginning, you're, you know, everyone is positive in the beginning. So you sing, you tell jokes because you think maybe someone's hearing <laughs> You start reciting inspirational phrases and words and sayings that you've learned your whole life, comforting words. 
And then you don't realize it, they said, but you start reciting things that you were taught way, 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 way back when you were a kid, like now I lay me down to sleep, or even the Lord's Prayer, even though you don't know anything about what it means. But after that, anxiety. What about anything and everything, they said. After anxiety, it was increasing paranormal paranoia came next about the most absurd and the most ridiculous things like one of the guys actually thought okay maybe these people were tricking us and they just brought us down here to leave us here forever they're never coming back to let us out one volunteer said without light it was impossible to stimulate myself and my brain felt as if it was going to sleep i was left only solitarily to myself. The real trouble began at the 30-hour mark, though. It started with pacing. It would literally, the volunteers would literally start pacing the room. Professor Robbins said, this behavior is often seen in animals as well as people when they are kept in confinement. It's a way of providing, it's a way of trying to provide physically an input of meaning into your life. Can I find any meaning? And desperately, maybe my movements, my body, that there will be some physical input, some meaningful input that's brought into this total sensory deprivation called darkness. After pacing came hallucinations. A volunteer explains, I felt nothing but numbness as though I was losing the will to live. I realized that the lack of stimulation was driving me close to losing my mind. Isaiah 9 says, we live, move, marry, work, play, do life in an isolation chamber. And Isaiah 9 says, um, the challenger deep, the isolation chamber, it's real. It's real. It's real. It's real. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and up to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be. Please be seated. Oh Lord, um, the texture, the terrain of this passage is breathtaking. Uh, it's as low as we can go. And then, it, and then it's higher than we possibly ever dreamed. So, oh Lord, would you cause us to re-experience this text? Fresh, new, living words. And we ask this in your name, amen. Verse 2, let's look at it together. The people who walk in darkness, those dwell in the land of deep darkness. Isaiah 9 says there's a global darkness. There is a global isolation chamber. Most of us get this, right? To some level or another, we get this. Not many of us walk around thinking and feeling and saying deep in our heart, life is a box of chocolates. Unless, of course, you're Forrest Gump and you're under 10 years of age. That's why I love being around kids. 10 years and down. Now, when you get in the teens, it's a, little, it's a little different, isn't it? 10 years and down. The happiest people on the planet are kids 10 years and down. But our deepest problem with global darkness is the same as it was in Israel in Isaiah 9. They're divided. Um, they're threatened. It's the same as, I, as Israel in the first century when they were being conquered, or actually they were occupied it's not ignoring the darkness that is our problem, although that is a problem, so please hear me. Ignoring the darkness is a problem, but that's not our main problem. That's not our deepest problem. That's not Israel's deepest problem. Our deepest problem is that we believe we can overcome it. If Paul was here, he'd say to you Christians, many of you actually, you know, you know you struggle with things, your problem isn't the things you're struggling with. Your problem is you're struggling against your struggle. Your problem is you think you can overcome the darkness. You think you bring the light. Paul would say, that's Romans 7. That's why I wrote Romans 7. The New York Times ran an ad during Christmas a while back saying the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we, the global world, will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. So in other words, yes, the world is dark. Uh, yes, the world needs light. And we have the light within us. We bring the light to the world. And anyone that hears that, and anyone that's in the world of Isaiah, uh, we have to ask ourselves, we have to have an honest conversation and say, do we really? Can we really bring the light? Do we really have light within us? 
Look at verse 1. In the former time, he brought into the contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations are Gentiles. Israel is divided in two. You have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, historically called Israel. Southern kingdom, historically called Judah. Alive at this time, arising at this time, is this massive new world power that has everyone shaking and quaking called Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser, or Pileser, I actually went and heard an audio recording because I wanted to get it right. You can go either way, just so you know. It's like Augustine or Augustine. Take your pick. Tiglath-Pileser III conquers the world to the east. He wants the world on the west. At the time of writing right now, you have the Mediterranean. All these small little nations that dot the coast have been obliterated and consumed under Assyria. And two parcels of land in the northern part of Israel called Neptali and Zebulun. Two territories that are like the tip of the Israel spear that poke into the world. Israel encountered the world in those two places. In those two places, you had Hebrews, Canaanites, Arameans, Hittites, Mesopotamians, all mixed up and living together. That's why the text says in verse 1, Galilee of the nations. It's the, it's the Galilee of the nations. So Assyria is here. Every Israelite in Isaiah 9 felt darkness. They married into darkness. They had families in darkness. They went to work in darkness. They made friendships in darkness. They lived, eat, breathe, drank in darkness. But once again, our deepest problem and their deepest problem is not ignoring the darkness. It's believing we can overcome it, believing we actually bring the light. How is Israel trying to overcome the darkness? How is Israel trying to bring the light? Look at Isaiah 8, 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. What is going on here? <laughs> Palm readers? Astrologers? Tarot cards? necromancers? What is Israel doing in their darkness? They're doing the same thing we do. They're looking to their experts to bring them light. Some of us move to more gifted, exceptional people. We look to the gurus. We look to the specialists. We look to the mystic. We look to the scholar. She will bring the light. Others of us look to the state. We think a political candidate, a political party, political policies. They will bring the light. Others of us still look to the market, and we think of the market, and we think of either capitalism or communism or socialism. We think of money and influence and the exchange of goods or the withholding of goods. A certain amount goes to the government, a certain amount goes to the people. This will bring the light. And I think every single one of us in this room and every single one that's in one of those other areas, I think every one of us think technology will. Human intellect, human intuition, human resources. Man, if the iPhone 7 does it, there will be an iPhone 20 one day, and that will. We think it's bad, things are dark, but we can overcome it. That's the American spirit, is it not? Our efforts to bring the light, though, is that this is pretty, it's 
pretty freaky. It's pretty scary what happens here. And those of you that have wrestled with yourself for a long time and have wrestled with relationships that don't work for a long time and have wrestled with life in a real way in a long time, you will get what's about to be said. The rest of us, you're just going to have to wait till it happens to you. And it will happen. 8.22. Our efforts to bring the light in 8.22 are described in this way, that we're actually looking to the earth to bring us light. And they will look to the earth, but behold, pay attention, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Do you see what happened? Trying to bring light makes the darkness even darker. At the deepest problem you're facing is not necessarily your messed up relationship. It's your efforts to try to fix it. It's not that particular sin you're struggling with. It's the fact that you're so convinced you are going to conquer it and get rid of it that you bring the light and you overcome the dark, with God's help, of course, but that you do it. We can't overcome the darkness. Hear that again. We can't overcome the darkness and we don't have to. We don't bring the light and we don't have to. So there's some of us need to hear, I can't overcome the darkness. I, I don't bring the light. I don't do this in my life. I don't do this in my home. I don't do this at work. I don't do this at school. I can't do it. And that's why you got verse 4 and 5 here. These are two pictures that are meant to capture your imagination to actually help you experience the reality that you can't. We are not equipped, in verse 4, to bear burdens. You're not equipped to bear burdens. Your burdens are too great, and you lack the ability to bear them. You can't be a burden bearer, the text says. Verse 5, the text is saying, listen, you're not strong enough to fight for your life. The battle is too great for you. And so right now the text is inviting us and it says to all of us, he says, listen, stop, 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 cease striving, stop playing God. Stop trying to take God's place. And then others of us need to hear, I don't have to overcome the darkness. I don't have to bring the light in my messy life, in my relationship with God at home, at work, at school, on the ball field, at the piano. And this picture in verse 4 and 5 goes like this. I don't have to bear my burdens. Someone else does. I don't have to put the warrior's boot on and fight for my life because someone else fights for me. God brings the light. 
period. Don't miss the grammar here. I love grammar. You guys know I'm a geek in grammar. Nowhere else. Don't miss the grammar. Why do I not have to bear my burdens in verse 4? Why don't I have to put on the warrior's boot and fight for my life? Verse 5. What does verse 6 begin with? Four. Gosh. Here's why. Here's the reason. This is the answer. For to us, a child is born. A son is given. And the government, which means the kingdom, the cosmic kingdom, epic salvation. I get really, really big here. Theological word, eschatological life, ultra life, eternal life, is on his shoulders. And I said this earlier, and I mean it now. It's just so hard to do what it says next. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. I feel like every time I read that, I am so small that I can't do justice to it. I wish I had like the best voice in the world and I would do something with it over those four names. I wish I was the best actor in the world and I would try to project an image for you over those four names. Or, or I'll turn to Handel's Messiah and let that happen. <laughs> those four words are breathtaking. Ed Young is a, is a teacher, was a teacher um, at Westminster, and he said that the lack of commentary on these four names have left us impoverished. It all hangs on one person. It all hangs on one child. It all hangs. Everything Hanks on a son. We don't bring the light, the child does. We don't overcome the darkness, the child does. We don't bear our burdens, the child does. We don't put the warrior's boot on and fight for our life, the child fights. The child is the great light. When you look up great in the Hebrew, it's a really weird deal. It's almost like you can't wrap yourself around it. it it's, it's inf- every category is immense, overflowing the boundaries, above and beyond, immeasurable, unconquerable, limitless, So we say, in the English language, great. Oh, that's just a big letdown. Is it not? I mean, what a letdown. A great light. Okay. The child is the great light. The great light has dawned in the challenger deep. The great light has flashed in the isolation chamber. One author puts it this way. It's a little long, but I think we can get it. Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. Do you see that? 
It does not say cheer up. If we pull together, we can make the world a better place. We treat Christmas as if it's so sentimental and it's so harpy and it's so weird and it's so Gnostic and it's so, I don't know what it is. Christmas actually says the world is dark. It, Christmas looks at reality. Christmas comes up to you and me and it says, man, let me tell you how it is. Let me tell you what what you're really like. Let me tell you what your relationships are really like. Let me tell you what the world is really like. And I'm going to tell you what reality is because I love you. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance, but it doesn't support the illusion that we can defeat it. That's a big difference. So Christmas doesn't come in. Christmas comes in and says, look, it's dark. But it doesn't come in and say, and we can overcome it. Let's get the world together. And let's beat this thing. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does Christianity agree with the pessimists who only see a dystopian, which means a very bad place, only a bad place in the future. So, so Christmas doesn't come in and say, it's dark and it's hopeless. You have every reason to be skeptical. You have every reason to be pessimistic. In fact, the sky is falling. Chicken Little is right. Run to the hills. No, it walks in and Christmas says, this is true. This is reality. And there's hope because there's a light that is not going to come from within you and that you don't bring, but it's going to break in from the outside and shine and dawn and flash. It will be a child, a son. And his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Two of these names every Israelite knew. They were very familiar with two of these names. When an Israelite read this text or was encountered with this, they were like, oh yeah, we get that. that you got Mighty God and you got Everlasting Father. So far, so good. Then what happens next sent them into a tailspin. They, the train went off the tracks. It's like, what are you talking about? Because the shocking parts is that they're given or they're attributed to a child. Someone born of human flesh, a son. Now their world is spinning. Now our world is spinning. Now, it, now we don't know what to think, and categories are exploding, and places are being restructured. The cosmos is changing. Psychologically, we're changing. Mighty everlasting Yahweh becomes a child. Mighty everlasting Yahweh becomes a son. Mighty everlasting Yahweh becomes so identified with you and me, He becomes one of us. Dorothy Sayers, British novelist, essayist, said years ago, the incarnation means that for whatever reason God has chosen to let the, us fall. This is, this is the only answer to the problem of evil. There is no other answer. 
You can calculate and you can do your, your logic and you can do your theological diatribes and doctrinal dissertations on the problem of evil and try to connect the dots and try to make it real. But God's answer is this, and she nails it. The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. The problem of evil is only dealt with when we realize this world is a dark place, it is suffering, and God says, I'm in it too. I am going to enter into the the isolation chamber. I'm going to go down to the deepest, darkest place, not just in the planet, but in the cosmos. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life. That'll be fun over Christmas, right? And the cramping restrictions of hard work, the lack of money, to the worst horrors and pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain for us. And this is beautiful. Because he thought it well worthwhile. The other two names have never been named in the Bible, and they are foreign to Israel's history. You are hearing two names. If you were an Israelite, you are hearing these for the first time. You have no data points for these other two names. You have nothing to draw upon to try to get meaning in these two names. These two names are completely off your charts, theologically, doctrinally, experientially, racially, nationally. You've never heard them before. This is the first time they show up. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace. He knows your darkness, and this is basically what's happening. These two names emphasize God becoming enmeshed in your condition. You know, codependency, enmeshment, well, God, you know what he says? Yep, I'm enmeshed. I'm in it. I'm so enmeshed. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace. He knows your darkness. He's the wonderful counselor. What that means is, is that he, it literally means wonder of counselor. It's a wonder of counselor because a counselor is someone that, that listens to you and empathizes with you and enters into where you're at, but not only that, has experienced it. Those are the best. Could be paid, it could be volunteer, it could be a friend, could be certified, it could be trained. It's just someone who actually walks empathetically and compassionately and lovingly with you where you're at. Wonderful counselor. He walks through your darkness. He walks with you in your darkness. Wonderful counselor. He becomes your darkness. Wonderful counselor. He absorbs all your darkness. Wonderful counselor. What a wonder. What a wonder. And then he overcomes your darkness because he's the prince of peace. He's the hero of peace. He takes your darkness, which is, it's a great image because it encompasses everything, but packed into it are a lot of other things that can be said. You and I have a nature of darkness which is completely 
a dark mass of self-absorption that is actually fixated to your nature. It's called original sin. And it manifests itself in specific sins, which are called transgressions in the Scriptures. And then these things, this nature and the manifestations of them, have these decreative, dark realities that go on in our life where you actually break down as a human being, spiritually, psychologically, physically, relationally. It's like the great chaotic deep has come and it lives inside of you. And it's decreating you and me. And Jesus took all that darkness upon himself and defeated it. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew records this. From noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. The great light was snuffed out. Extinguished. And he took the great chaotic deep with him. He took the isolation chamber with him. He took the challenger deep with him. He descended into darkness so that you can live in light. After the 48 hours of the isolation chamber, 48 hours of total sensory deprivation, 48 hours of complete and absolute total darkness, blackness, so thick you can cut it. One volunteer said, you know, when I was going in to do the experiment, I never noticed my surroundings. I never looked around. I never looked at all. I was going into the building, down to the subterranean levels, and getting ready for the experiment. And this is what he said, but after the dawn of light and I came out, I noticed how green the grass was how blue the sky was and hundreds and hundreds of yellow buttercups. It was staggeringly beautiful. Even washing my hands under tap water was amazing. When we trust in Jesus to bring the light in his life and his death and his resurrection and not in our own efforts to bring the light, when you and I do that, it's called becoming a Christian, and it's also how you continue as a Christian. God forgives you. He takes your darkness away. He accepts you. He implants into you his very own spirit, and the light flashes into your life. The great light shines upon You now become, as Paul would say, light in the Lord. Jesus, light of the world. There's something absolutely right about putting Christmas lights up at Christmas. I am repenting. I will now help my wife every year now put up Christmas lights. There's something right about that. Absolutely right. There's something right about singing about the light at Christmas. Absolutely right. 
We are not resigned to darkness. We are not resigned to hopelessness. We are not resigned to cynicism. We are not resigned to fear. We are not resigned to anxiety because the light has come. We're not resigned to trying to find light within. You don't have to look to the necromancers. The light, the great light, changes everything. 